0: I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe
1: in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something?
2: Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. Michael Patton, Tim, how are you?
1: Good. It's good, good to, how are to be you? here.
2: I'm doing very well. All right. Good to have you, folks, uh, back again. You're, you're taking a beating this is our eighth one or our ninth one yeah on invitation to Calvinism it's
1: never gonna stop the invitation will go on forever and
2: on and on all right well uh it's, it's certainly been a fun broadcast to do, mm-hmm. and um, I, I pray that everybody's benefiting from this. Again, Invitation to Calvinism, coming to you from the Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma. If you could ever make it by here, stop by and see the place and have a have a Calvin now. Okay.
1: Yeah, you can have a Calvin. or We're talking about, I don't know if you were in on this conversation, someone requested a new drink in our coffee shop, and it was a steamer. And we're thinking about calling it the Super lapse. Lapsarianism steamer, what? maybe, yeah. Just with the idea that if you can pronounce it, which I don't even know if I did that correctly, then we'll give you fifty percent off.
2: Well, we do <laughs> superlapsarianism. I don't know if we'll get to that here in Calvinism. No, I don't think so. Misconception. I, I hope
1: we don't get to that in our invitation to Calvinism. <laughs> we're we're ultimately
2: inviting you to superlapsarianism. Okay, so <laughs> uh, you come by the Creedo and if you say the word superlapsarian Okay, then we will give you a free latte of your choice.
1: Okay, but your choice is going to be
2: limited to the Calvin, the Luther. We've got the Spurgeon,
1: <laughs> and maybe the Steamer. The Steamer. Is we don't mine.
2: have a, the Armenian though, do we?
1: No, but we have the Nicene Mocha.
2: Hmm. So the Nicene Mocha. We have the C.S. Lewis. In the C.S. Lewis. C- C.S. Lewis was an Arminian, wasn't he? Yes, he was. All right, see, yeah, we're, there we we're go. Very balanced here.
1: We well, yeah. I mean, on our wall, we've got Wesley and and Augustine and all sorts of people.
0: Okay. Well I'm not on that wall yet, am I?
1: No, you aren't. Well I mean the the check that says don't let this guy you know write checks here. You're on that you're on that wall. (laughs) But you're not on the the wall (laughs) at the post office.
2: All right, guys. Well, we're finishing up our uh, our fundraising drive. Uh, just to mention, uh, the still time, please. Uh, if you're benefiting from these broadcasts, if you're benefiting from our ministry, if you believe in what we're doing, we're uh, in the process of raising sixty thousand dollars for our spring fundraiser. That's right. I love to have you join and partner with us in in what we're doing here. Okay, we're continuing to talk about limited atonement. Last week we began to talk about limited atonement going through our acronym of TULIP because we believe that that is the best uh, didactic, which means teaching, Mm. teaching device and leading you through Calvinism, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, T, unconditional election, U, P, or L. L, limited atonement. Um, that's what we're on limited atonement. We talked about a better name for it might be particular redemption, um, or, or something other than limited atonement because that puts a bad spin on it. At least Sam said that last week. Uh, we talked about this being with regards obviously to the atonement for whom did Christ die? Did he die for everyone? Or did he die for the elect?
1: And to Sam nuance that as well, an additional thing would be, and what was the nature of that death for whom he died as well? Was it uh, a
2: a particular death where he paid for the individual sins of every individual to where even if you are uh, an unbeliever and you find yourself in hell, you are there even though Christ died for you? Uh, What are you suffering for? I mean, what's, what's the problem? That's uh, what we ended with last time. We said that's one of the hardest things if you believe that Christ died for everyone is that you have to either get rid of the doctrine of hell or you have to adjust your view of the atonement to where he didn't actually pay for our sins individually, but... Paid for this concept, a, a token payment for sins,
1: or, or what you could say. I mean, I, I say I think the nuance of that is what you could say is that that is why they're in hell. Possibly is that he did die for all of their sins, but they did not trust in him. And,
2: and that and, is an option I've heard people say. You know, there people are in hell not for their sins, but for just rejecting him that's all Yeah, I actually wrote a blog about this a couple of weeks ago uh, concerning why are people in hell for eternity and I believe people are in hell for eternity because they're in eternal rejection against God they are eternally sinful they are eternally identified with the endemic race that is unredeemed and unable to come to a favorable view of God in any sense yeah. um, but do they pay for their individual sins and remember in, in the Bible many times it talks about the wrath of God coming on the basis of people's sins.
1: Yeah, not on the basis of their rejection, yeah. but on the basis of their sins. Yeah. And the book of Romans seems to see that, too. We're, we're dead in our sins, not dead in our rejection of mm. Christ.
2: Yeah. The sin, nature is the problem. Sins are have to be paid for.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, okay. So, now, we ended last week by trying to give some logical progression and some biblical progression. Christ said, I laid down my life for my sheep. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And so there's a particular group that will come to him. There's a particular group in focus. When the angel came to Mary, he said that he will save his people from their sins. Not all people from their sins. Uh, but his people, and John chapter 17, we didn't mention this last week, but he also is making his high, this is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. Um, John is the only, uh, book in the Bible to contain this, but in the middle of the prayer, Christ says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me, for they are yours, and mine are yours, and yours are mine. I mean, very particular here. Mm-hmm. I, I, Christ is saying, "I'm not praying for those people that that are outside the scope of of the plan." It seems, you know, of the elect. I'm praying for those that you have given to me, and so um, John seems to be giving us every indication to point towards the atonement being particular. Mm-hmm. Um, there and there are other texts that that point
0: in that direction. You remember Paul's. Uh, sermon to the, the uh, Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and that very famous statement in Acts 28 where it says that uh, elders are to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood, with the blood of his own son. So again there, the focus of the redemptive purchase by the son is the church. Uh, and then of course you have the very famous passage in Ephesians 5 where uh, husbands are exhorted to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So again, a very explicit affirmation that the giving of the son was for or on behalf of the church. So texts like that are are among those that lead us, at least some of us anyway, to the conclusion that uh, Christ's
2: sufferings were limited in their scope. Um, Christ said, you are not my sheep. That's why you don't believe in me. Mm -hmm. My sheep hear my voice. There are his sheep and there are those who are not his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. They come to him. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Okay, now having said that, before we get into a further defense of this, let's deal with some of the more problem passages, because we mentioned last week that this is one of those points in Calvinism to where there is debate even within Calvinist, where you have four-point Calvinist and five-point Calvinists. Five-point Calvinists are those who accept all five points of the tulip. Four-point Calvinists are those who only accept four. I even hear sometimes four-and-a-half. You know, the, I'm not sure exactly what a four-and-a-half is, but uh, I've heard four-and-a-half point Calvinists.
1: Mm. Well, Why
2: would a person reject this?
1: Well, uh, here, let's throw out First uh, John 2, 2, perhaps. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Sam? What are you going to do with that, Michael? Huh? He's looking at me. Over. Michael, come I'm, back I'm in. Michael, back don't leave. <laughs> Go. Yeah. Well,
0: let's just say right up front, and I, I, I am very open and honest, at least I try to be when I say this, that, uh, and this might disappoint some of my five-point Calvinist friends, limited atonement is not necessarily a hill on which I'm ready to die uh, in the sense that I would not divide from other believers over this issue. I do not find it to be uh, a subject that is of such paramount importance and with such unmistakable clarity in the scriptures that I would um, find it uh, a matter over which I would separate from believers. Well, in my you've already said
2: me. we wouldn't separate from believers right. even over all of these issues exactly. of Calvinism from an Arminian, but... Would you allow someone from a, say, a Calvinist conference, would you allow it to be mixed between four-points and five-point cal- Calvinists? If you were in control and you, they said, we want you to put together, Sam, a, cal- a conference on Calvinism. So if he's king of Calvinism
1: together- world and exactly. people are coming to Calvinism does, world, does allow the who do you let in Fellowship. Calvinism world? Yeah, I, would, say, I would
0: just simply say whosoever will may come.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, no. uh, well, okay. Well, 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 but but
0: there are, the reason I said, said what I did is because, honestly, there are passages that are hard to account for. And I think if those of us who embrace limited atonement don't acknowledge that, we're not really being sincere and honest and forthright. And I think it frustrates those who would embrace an unlimited atonement. First John 2, 1 and 2 is a difficult passage. Second Peter 2, 1 is a difficult passage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 14 and 15. It's a difficult passage. But just to address the one you raised, Tim, uh, that he is a propitiation uh, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. My understanding of that um, is that John is telling us as clearly as he can, or maybe not as clearly as we might prefer, that the uh, saving mercies of God in Christ are no longer restricted to the nation Israel, that the boundaries by which the saving work of God was, to a certain extent, limited in the Old Testament, confined to the nation Israel, although, granted, there were exceptions throughout the course of redemptive history, but uh, largely salvation is of the Jews. That's, you know, it's a fundamental understanding of Scripture, and I think John is saying that those ethnic boundaries, those national boundaries, have been Um, uh, done away with, and that the whole of the world, meaning Gentile as well as Jew, people of every race and tribe and nation, can be the objects and the focus of the saving work of God in Christ. So when he talks about the whole world, he means the world beyond uh, the ethnic boundaries of the Jewish nation or the nation of Israel alone. So my understanding is is that that is what John is trying to emphasize. Plus, uh, we have to address what propitiation is. And if, in fact, that means, as I believe it does, that Christ in his death has satisfied the wrath of the Father on behalf of those for whom he died. In other words, he has appeased, he has propitiated the holy wrath of the Father uh, on behalf of those for whom he is suffering. Then to get back to your point earlier, Michael, I have to ask the question, on what grounds does anyone suffer in hell for eternity? So if propitiation refers to the satisfaction of God's wrath, and that is something, according to our unlimited friends, that Christ did for each and every human being, I have to ask the question, on what grounds then are these other human beings who do not come to faith in Jesus ultimately condemned?
2: Would you say that, that what you just said is... A typical response to this particular passage,
0: yeah, it's it's probably the most widespread among those who
2: embrace limited atonement. Well, well, here is the problem that I have with that is whenever we're talking about First John, and whenever he he starts off and he says, "My little children, I am writing to you these things." I mean, we kind of we've got our uh, pronouns set, my children, I am writing to you, and then whenever he says "our," I, I have a hard time distinguishing him from saying, our sins, me and yours to whom I am writing, which, uh, as far as I know, he's writing to the Ephesians, right? Largely, yes. Yes. And if he was, he wasn't speaking about Jews. uh, He was speaking about ours as a Christian community, um, those of the whole world out there. And so it's hard for me to be able to see this as him pulling it back and saying, ours as the Jewish people or as Israelites,
0: well, even if he isn't, the, the point that I made would still obtain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would still be John's way of saying, even to a mixed congregation of Christian believers, both Jew and Gentile, don't get the idea that the saving mercy of God is restricted even to us, even those who comprise this body. Yeah. It is one that crosses the boundary lines Um, if I can use the language of Revelation, he has purchased for himself men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. That's what I understand the whole world to mean. Mm -hmm. So even if we wouldn't necessarily embrace how I first articulated, although many still do, I think the the emphasis of, of Revelation 5, you have purchased for yourself men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, and made them a kingdom, and they shall be priests upon the earth. I think that likely could be what John is referring to in that phrase in 1 John
2: 2. Too. Another way that I've taken it myself is taking this uh, way of looking at this and saying he is the propitiation and taking the equative verb is and how is the equative verb often used even in the English language we can use this in a a sense of of potential because I can say this as I don't know who out there is chosen or who out there Christ actually did die for and so I could say that he died for the whole world in the sense that I, I don't know and so I'm 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 Throwing my net very broadly. Uh, You you may have somebody who says, you know, uh, uh, there is a ride for a particular group of people to go to the Thunder Game, you know, and they're going to pick us up at the Credo House. And they're going to come on a bus. And we've got all these people, 20 people at the Credo House, and they're going to ride from the Credo House to the Thunder Game. And I call up here and I say, hey, your ride is almost there. And everybody there, it is their ride, right, a potential. But it doesn't mean it's actually their ride until they take it. You know what I'm saying? And, and the propitiation is not really in our minds, in John's mind. He doesn't know who has taken that ride. And so the equative verb can be used in a very potential sense, that it is the ride. It, Christ is the salvation for all people without having to distinguish which ones actually are the elect within those. You see what I'm saying? I think we sometimes try to push our individual authors in too much of a, of a theological, you've got to be theologically precise every time you talk. And I don't think they try to do that every time.
0: You know what I'm saying? I do. I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable, though, with the idea of talking about a potential propitiation. Because Jesus did suffer and endure the wrath of God. He yeah. did yeah. satisfy the Father's anger and uh, and uh, met all the demands of holy justice on behalf of those who... But what blessed.
2: I'm saying is from John's perspective, it's potential. Not from God's perspective. Mm-hmm. From John's perspective, he doesn't know any better. Christ is the only way for all sure. people. I understand what you're saying. And so I push out there and I say, Christ is the only way for all people. And if I said for all people, I'm not saying he is the satisfaction for every individual. I'm just saying He is he is the salvation for all people. But I'm not saying who is gonna take the ride. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, what, we, we what, understand uh, what you're
1: saying, but we—I uh, don't know—I I wouldn't use that same terminology. But well, but, I, I mean, have that, a harder that, time with that illustration. Passage. We're getting ready. To okay, get to. should we move to the other one? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So, what's the other one?
2: Uh, let me get to it. Hold on, just a second here. Um, now, now you said beforehand you have an easy answer for this, but I'd like to. <laughs> I know you're talking you about Hebrews two nine, aren't you? Yeah. in in hebrews 2 9 it says uh we do not see him who was made a little while lower than the angels namely jesus because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of god he may taste death for every man Mm -hmm. um what does it mean to taste death for every man Doesn't that and and this language here is more particular to me than saying the whole world? Mm. It's every man. I mean, right here. uh, Uh, You're reading from the New
0: American Standard. Yes. Okay,
2: that's all right. Um, We'll we'll allow that. I'm looking at the ESV. All right, I'll bring up the ESV. So that
0: by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Still, same point of emphasis. Yeah, Yeah. it sounds uh, rather universal. And unlimited in its scope, the death that he tasted or that he endured—it was for, on behalf of, in the place of every person, every one, every
1: man.
2: Yeah, DSV went gender neutral on that particular passage alone. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> that was good. I, I, and the reason I just got why it. I
2: don't think that's what
0: it means, is because of
2: what follows in verse ten. Okay. I never read verse ten. I just for
0: it. it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So in other words, the everyone for whom he tasted death are the many sons who are actually brought to glory who are referred to in the immediately following passage. And he goes on in verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Who are those that are sanctified? They're the many sons brought to glory who are also the everyone of verse 9. So anytime a universal term is used, whether it's all or world or everyone, we have to ask the question, is he speaking of everyone in a universally universally distributive sense? Or is he talking, to, or, you know, I could say everyone in this room. Well, mm. there are only three of us, Yeah, but it, that's a universal affirmation of the particular group that I have in mind. And I think he's talking about every one of the sons who are brought to glory, every one of those whom he actually sanctifies. So So I think the context that follows actually limits what appears to be an otherwise uh, universal term.
2: Okay. I'll I'll go with that. and I I do see it. And, again, when we get back to this, I can see it from either side very easily.
0: Sure, sure. And, and
2: again, let me say, because I know that
0: some of our listeners are probably – shaking their heads at what I've just said, let me say that I understand why somebody would draw the conclusion that unlimited atonement is true because of this statement. And that statement in verse 9 is consistent with an unlimited atonement. It's not a slam dunk. It's not uh, an interpretation that eliminates all possible counter-arguments. But it does make sense in the totality of the context and is consistent, I think, with what the rest of the New Testament says about
2: the extent of Christ's sufferings. All right, well, I'm going to get to my hardest passage, okay? This may not be your hardest passage. I acted like that last one was. Now I'm giving my real jewel, okay? Okay. Uh, I think it's John 3.16. Oh, no, that's not it. That's No, That's for me it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. My problem here is the God loving the world and the result of his love In the giving of his son. Now, I could translate this and think of it as for God so loved the world that he caused his son to die on behalf of that world, that he made atonement for the world. Because giving his son is giving him over to death ultimately. And so, if the world, if we make this universal in scope, God so loved the world, it is universal in scope then the giving of son has to be applied to that universal in scope world. And I know the typical way we answer this is that world is not really all people. It is just uh it is that he loves not all people without Distinction, but all peoples, types of peoples, without distinction.
0: Actually, that's not no. at all the argument that I would use. But you go ahead. No, yeah. no, that's the best well. I've and, got. and
1: the Greek word is kosmon here, so which is typically a, a big picture universe type thing. But but let me ask you this, Michael. So if you're struggling with this for God so loved the world, but this is not talking about the atonement, am I correct? Please yeah, answer the question right or now. You gave, you're, yeah. you're standing on. You know, we're in a courtroom here. So so. Yeah, I think that's it, a, that's think a it is talking there, about the way. atonement.
2: I think the giving is the atonement. He gave his son over to death.
1: Okay, so you're not thinking like that might be the hypostatic union or anything mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. with giving. So giving, I think it's the whole totality definitely... of what
2: Christ's purpose was, which was ultimately uh, uh, came down to his death on the cross. Okay, that's the giving.
1: Okay, okay.
2: The reason why he gave was for the world. His love for the world.
0: And and that's the question that we need to to ask is what is um, the world to which reference is being made? And le- let me—I was actually thumbing through my own book where I have an extended <laughs> treatment of John three sixteen. My book chosen for life. How's that for a nice little advertisement? <laughs> that's good. And I couldn't even find the, the the page, so I'll have to just do it from my memory. You are like I should I have
1: put that index in the back. Yeah. Huh? Well, it's there,
0: but they don't have the they don't have the right page number. The index is lacking. Believe it or not. Um, we have to ask the, see, for example uh, I recently heard Bruce Ware at the Evangelical Theological Society we referred to Bruce last week um, as, a, as a Calvinist who holds to unlimited atonement and he dismissed the, uh, the five point interpretation of John 3.16 because he said it doesn't make sense to interpret this as meaning the world of the elect well I'd agree with him that's not, I don't think that's at all what John is saying there I think the mistake is in thinking that by world, John has in mind a quantitative number of individuals. I think the word world there is being used in a qualitative sense. I think what John is saying is is that God loved what was the moral antithesis of himself. God loved that which is the spiritual opposite, that which is eternal light, loved that which is darkness, that he who is infinitely holy loved, that which is uh, indescribably unholy. The question of how many people were are encompassed by that is simply not in view. The issue is what a magnanimous love, what an incredible affection that God would find it within his heart to shower his affection on that which is the very opposite of himself and in rebellion against himself. I don't think you measure the love of God by counting up the number of people who are the objects of Christ's death. You measure the magnitude and the depth of God's love by looking at the qualitative depravity of those for whom Christ died. So when when here John is trying to highlight, as we all agree, uh, the marvel of God's love—that God's love is great, God's love is wonderful, God's love is is, is beyond ultimately uh, the human human words. Why is it so? Is it because that love uh, was revealed in Jesus dying for X amount of people? I don't think so. I think it's a marvelous love, a, a, an indescribably glorious love, because it is a love that was willing to embrace that which hated him which was the moral antithesis of his character that's why God's love
2: is so wonderful. Let me add something that you probably got in your book that you were searching for, but this came to mind while you are talking about this. And John, I mean, just a couple of chapters beforehand, whenever he's using the same word, world. And you know, John, he uses words in a very particular way. You've got to be careful with John because he's very esoteric sometimes with his usage. But uh, supporting what you just said, Sam, mm-hmm. in John 1.10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And that's kind of encapsulating what mm. comes up later. But God still so loved the world. And, and I, I can see what you're saying, and, and it makes sense. And, um, you know, it's better than anything that I might be able to come up with mm. that, uh, that would satisfy this. But I do think that John does use this, this term world in such a way. Uh, he was the light, the true light that comes into the world. Um, comes into every individual No, into this world This this creation God so loved his creation That he did not let his creation go he, God so loved what he had made That he did not say Forget you guys I'm going You go your own way I'm going my way And I'm going to go to plan B And create a new world But God so loved the world So he does love the world And we would all acknowledge that uh, That he loves his creation in such a way you look like you're searching. No, I, I actually <laughs> found it. I
0: found it. I, uh, it's, yeah, it's on pages one ninety eight through uh, two hundred in my book. And again, I just, um, just reminding myself of what I wrote there. That the point again is that people, I think, have mistakenly assumed that the way you ascertain the qualit, the, the nature or the glory of God's love is by counting up heads. By trying to figure out the number that you say, wow, isn't God's love incredible that it would actually extend to each and every individual on the face of the earth? And I think that that in another place, in another argument that might obtain, but here I think John's point is, no, we measure God's love. Not by how big the world is, but by how bad the world is. It's the world as corrupt, fallen, in rebellion, in darkness. As you, say, as you read just from that passage a moment ago, that we came into the world and the world did not uh, recognize him or did not embrace him. So again, I think it's a qualitative focus, not a quantitative one. And therefore, it really doesn't even address the issue of the extent of the
2: atonement. Same word, Cosmos, used three chapters later by John. For this is the bread of God, which comes from heaven, that giveth life unto the world. Um, and then, again, same chapter, John chapter 6, verse 51, it says, If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread of life that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now once again we have this concept that if you replace that as as Sam says is not being every individual that is within the world but this the, the world that he didn't abandon the world that he is he is redeeming which we spell out as the elect within. One of the
0: uh, authors that I quote in this portion of my book is BB B. Warfield who has a wonderful treatment of John 3:16. I wish I could read the whole thing to you, but his his point here Uh, in one place when he's talking about the, the, the term cosmos. He says its connotation is ethical. And the point of its employment, he says, is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but rather that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all and much more to love it as God has loved it when he gave his son for it. So I just don't think that the issue of how many people for whom Christ died... Is in the forefront of John's thinking. I think it's the kind of people for whom Christ died. We have to determine how many or the extent of the atonement from other texts that might explicitly address it. But that's my understanding All of right, John's Well, 3, I'm going to wake up tomorrow
2: on the limited atonement side of the bed. I can tell you that one right now.
1: Yeah, Confused and, and, many times. and seeing a limited atonement no way means that we limit who we share the gospel with or, or limit well, our worship about of that. Christ talk or anything like that.
2: I want to say to someone, um, you know, who's an unbeliever, who's a friend of mine, who's a family member. I I go up to him and I told them yesterday, uh, did you know Christ died for you? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Can can we legitimately say that? Uh, You know, is that unethical (laughs) now? (laughs) I wouldn't say it. What what do we say? What I I
0: would say is... Christ might have died for you? No. I say the great and glorious good news of the gospel is that Christ died for sinners. Christ died for people who were at enmity with God. I'd quote Romans 5. Uh, Christ died uh, for the ungodly. For all of their sins. And if, if you will recognize that you're ungodly and that you are a sinful individual alienated from God at enmity with him, and you'll embrace this gift then you can rejoice in knowing that his suffering was for you and that it has secured your place in eternity.
2: Folks, we're going to talk uh, in a few broadcasts about something that I know is burning on your heart and you're asking this question and you're saying, Does God love everybody? And can we say that God loves you? You know, maybe we may not be able to say it in the sense that Christ died for you, but does he love you? When we talk about passages such as uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. That is something I promise we are going to get to because I know that that is important with regards to this issue. Yeah,
0: we're not... If we tried to address this issue or defend a position and did not honestly look at passages that seem to speak otherwise, we would not be honest. We wouldn't be worth listening to. Mm-hmm. We won't. and again, it is the presence of these kinds of texts that give us pause in our defense of limited atonement. At least, give me pause. That's why I'm not. I'm not. I may sound dogmatic, uh, but I'm, I'm really not. Uh, I'm much more so on total depravity and unconditional election than the others. But on this, I recognize that as as persuasive as I sound to myself and as convinced as I must sound to you, um, there are problems with this view. And I don't want people to think that
2: we are ignoring them because we're not. Folks, yeah. comes down to uh, with with us that this that this is an invitation. This is part of the invitation. But in the invitation, please understand that whenever we talk about these things, we know the mystery, we know the difficulty, and we sit here as Sam was very again unplugged uh, said we're not completely positive about some of these things like this. They're, it's hard. It's hard. But invitation nonetheless. Invitation sent. Uh, reply to us at theology unplugged at reclaimingthemind.org tell us what you think
0: and that, one, one other thing Michael just to whet their appetite for future broadcasts nice. when we get to irresistible grace the eye of tulip we will have to answer the question is this invitation to Calvinism resistible or irresistible <laughs> nice. because it is
2: universal nice God wants you to become a Calvinist I can say that for sure <laughs> for God so loved all of you He wanted you to become a Calvinist. We're
1: descending into silliness. Tim, Sam,
2: (laughs) thanks for being here. Thanks. We will uh, see you next week, folks. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.